Alright, Domain Curry. The Donkey and the Cow. By This is Didact, and uh, I'm responding to a question posted by uh, reader Johnny. Uh, not John C911, this is a different chap, um, but a uh, different reader. Uh, and he had a question for me with respect to a uh, Friday TNA post, actually, from like last Friday's TNA post. And uh, he had a question, basically, uh, in the West, particularly in America, why are Indians so vocally and uniformly left-wing? Uh, they vote 85% Democrat, but unlike Asians and Hispanics, they are very vocal. Tons of Indians on Facebook and even LinkedIn now spout leftist bile. Why are they left-wing as a high-income group? Or are they just resentful about being weak and ugly, so they hate white people? Or are Jews encouraging them so as to set Indians up to take the heat once the collapse happens, so Jews avoid trouble? And then he goes on to say, uh, Indians might become the first non-white immigrant group that manages to be highly successful and widely hated at the same time. America is structurally inclined to praise any non-white group that succeeds and does not contribute to crime, so Indians could have had the country as their oyster. But very ridiculous anti-white hate seems to be cropping up from Indians at a greater rate every day. What is your take? Um, there's also some uh, some follow-up points uh, that he makes, uh, where he's basically asking about, you know, further on in the conversation, there's a number of comments about this, but basically he asks... Um, I responded in text to his questions uh, along two fronts. Uh, the first was uh, that um, basically Indians were brought into the U.S. by Democrat policies. You will note if you look at the um, total inflow of, of Asian Americans or Indians uh, from the subcontinent, uh, since 1965, it was it was massively ticked upwards. I mean, massively. Uh, it was almost non-existent, not completely, but almost non-existent before then. And it really accelerated enormously after that. Uh, why is that? Well, it's because of the Hart Seller Immigration Act of 1965, the Immigration and Nationalization, and the Immigration and Citizenship Act, or whatever it was called, um, which really opened the floodgates to immigrants from, uh, as I and others in this part of the, world, the, the, the sphere refer to it, the dirt world. And it is the dirt world. Uh, whether you find that a racist appellation or not, that's what it is. So I might as well get used to it. Um, but basically the reason why there are so many uh, Indians who vote liberal in the U.S. is because of... Uh, the fact that it was Democrats who created this policy. Now, there are a couple of factors involved here. Um, Indian Americans are the highest earning income group in the USA, surprisingly. You'd think it would be Jews, but it's not. It's actually Indians. Um, the reason for this is straightforward. Indians who come to the US and end up becoming Indian citizens, uh, and who have children in the US and kind of, um, you know, have families in the USA itself, uh, tend to be of the professional classes. Why is that? Okay. For that, you have to go back to about the late 1960s and early 1970s to the history of India itself. Now, after Indian independence, the uh, Indian government was ruled pretty much... Uh, the, the Indian Congress Party, the, the, the Congress Party, uh, 
the way to think of Congress is sort of as the Democrats of India, and the way to think of the BJP, uh, Bharatiya Janata Part, the Bharatiya Janata Party. I think I've got that right. Is as the Republicans, but the division is not nearly so neat. Okay, it's it's not that tidy because India is run on a parliamentary system, not a federal system the way that uh, the U.S. is. Uh, it's much more akin to the British Parliament, which is not surprising because the British, you know, gave India its institutions, and uh, India has uh, since then proceeded to ruin, run with them, and ruin them, uh, which is somewhat inevitable. But anyway. Basically, the majority party that, that wins um, at the federal level is the party of government. And for most of India's post-independence history, that party has been the Congress Party. The Congress Party had embraced for decades a policy of uh, outright socialism, of five-year plans, of uh, self-sufficiency, and of autarky. Uh, this was an absolute disaster for India and remained so for the entirety, and has remained that way for the entirety of its existence as a sovereign nation in the, 19, uh, in the 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, the result of, at that point, about 25 years of, so about a full generation of socialist policies, was that there were no good job opportunities in India. The taxes were at 97 plus percent uh, on the wealthiest of Indians. Uh, J.R.D. Tata, the kind of scion of the Tata um, group in India, uh, you know, one of the, the, the big Indian conglomerates, used to talk about how he would have to sell off assets every year to pay his tax bill because he was assessed at like 97% income taxes. And then he was taxed on his wealth and assets as well. So he had to sell off more and more of his assets every year just to pay the Indian government's tax bill. Uh, tax rates north of 50% on salaried professionals were not uncommon. And, uh, you know, price controls and wage controls were so rampant and so severe that companies couldn't really afford to give their employees raises because if they gave them uh, salaried raises beyond a certain point, well, all of that would be taken away. So the employees themselves would say, no, don't give me a raise. I don't want a raise. If you, if you pay me more money, I end up losing all of that to taxes, so don't do that. I'll end up paying much more in taxes. Uh, and the result was that companies would have to reward their employees with incentives such as uh, free holidays or free hotel stays or deeply, deeply discounted uh, holiday packages. I know because uh, my family was a direct beneficiary of these things. Um, now, the result was, of course, a massive exodus or diaspora of Indians to more favorable shores, particularly the professional classes. If you if you know anything about Indian society, you understand that it is highly stratified. Uh, it is based on a caste system, and I'll come back to this later because it's important. It's based on a caste system with the educated classes at the very top of society's heap. Then you have the um, the sort of ruling or warrior caste below that. Then you have the uh, merchant caste below that, then you have the manual labor caste below that, and then at the very bottom, you know, comprising hundreds of millions of people, you have the untouchables. Uh, this is a very stratified picture of society. It emerged from within Hinduism about 2,000 some years ago, something like that, and has remained ever since. 
It is a feature, not a bug, of Hinduism. And I, while I do not defend the caste system at all, I will simply point out that in a feudal society where wealth is determined by ownership of land, uh, a caste system is an economically relatively efficient way to run things, and that is proven by the fact that a caste system has evolved in pretty much every single land-owning uh, society in human history. Whether you're talking medieval Europe, uh, medieval Russia, mm, you know, um, the, the Middle East throughout almost all of its history, uh, India, China, or Japan. These societies are all completely different in every way, and yet the caste system of some kind has existed in all of them throughout human history, without exception. Okay, So economically speaking, it is an efficient way to organize people. That does not make it a good way to organize people when you are in a modern industrial economy. It doesn't work. And that's one of the many contradictions that Indian society is wrestling with today, and doing a very poor job of wrestling with, by the way. Um, now, during the diaspora of the 1960s and 70s, basically a huge number of, you know, millions upon millions of Indians, which actually still represents a pretty small fraction of the overall Indian population, fled India and went overseas to the UK, to the US, to, uh, you know, Southeast Asia. Uh, they spread, Australia, of course, they spread throughout the world. The characteristics of this group of people were fairly uniform. They tended to be uh, in one of two groups. Either they were unskilled laborers um, who ended up being taxi drivers and restaurant owners and so on in uh, the societies, I mean, not even restaurant owners, restaurant workers in the societies that they went to, or they were highly educated. Uh, they were doctors, lawyers, engineers, um, what else, accountants, and they went overseas to seek better job opportunities. The unskilled laborers uh, ended up forming large portions of uh, the backwater Indian communities, if you will, and they are backwaters. If uh, The Indian success stories that you hear about are very skewed. There are, for every, you know, Indian multimillionaire who went over to the US or the UK and ended up making it big. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of people who didn't and who ended up trapped in poverty and degradation in uh, the poorer suburbs, uh, which are, you know, rife with lots of Indians uh, trying to scrap out a living. This is more pronounced in the UK than it is in the US. Uh, if you go to the US and you look at the strata of the uh, Indian migrant classes, they tend to be concentrated in the wealthiest suburbs. Um, the, the examples where they are not, you will find typically in places like uh, Jackson Heights or in Jamaica, in Queens, um, and Flushing Meadows, that, that, those sorts of areas. But if you drive out to sort of Edison, New Jersey, which is, you know, it's, it's so Indian, it might as well be Calcutta or Bombay, uh, as a part of those cities. You know, you'll feel like you're back in India. It's a very weird feeling. Um, those areas are full of quite wealthy, quite well-off, professional-class Indians. And if you look at places like Silicon Valley 
or Redmond, Washington. Uh, Microsoft is basically an Indian-run company at this point. I mean, Google is heavily invested in Indian um, labor. Yeah, these are the these are the reasons why the median household income, not the average, the median household income among Indians, Indian Americans, is like a hundred thousand dollars a year. Now, like I said, for every great success story, there are lots and lots of non-success stories, failures, uh, and that is a big part of the reason why Indians in general vote Democrat because. You have, a, you know, Democrats present, uh, Democrats typically have two very different polar opposite camps. They have the ultra-rich liberal elite, and it does seem to be a law of human nature that the more money you get, the more, the more you acquire, the more liberal you become, uh, because of a, a sense of sort of noblesse oblige which becomes misguided at certain points because they they think that because you know these people make so much money i mean they make millions or billions of dollars and they think that the right way to distribute that wealth is through the government because they think it's obscene for people to have so much money they feel almost guilty about having so much while the rest of the world has so little so they seek to redistribute that wealth but they don't realize that the best way to redistribute wealth is through entrepreneurship, business, uh, and free markets. That's the best way to do it, is to give people a chance to stand on their own. And um, that philanthropy is often misguided. It often ends up creating very perverse incentives, uh, which destroy the incentives of local people to pick themselves up and get off, you know, get on their own two feet. Um, but the, the, the ultra the ultra rich end up believing that they have a an, ob an obligation to the rest of society to give money away and to to be do-gooders um, that is where that sense of obligation becomes warped and twisted and very unchristian on the other side of the spectrum you have the sort of teeming masses um, who are not well educated not well off and are conditioned to blame other people for their ills. They don't blame themselves, they blame others. Um, that is also a very strong voting base for Democrats. Uh, and Indians in America tend to fall perfectly into, almost perfectly, into those two camps. If you look at the distribution of Democrat voters these days, it is like a dumbbell shape. It is not, uh, it is not a peaked distribution in the middle. Uh, the way it is for Republicans, particularly, uh, if you, you know, judging by income disparity. These days, Democrat voters tend to be much more on the extremes of, of income distributions. So, the, that explains part of the reason why they keep voting Democrat. Now, how many American Indians are there? Well, or Indian Americans, I should say. Uh, only about four million. It's not a big voting block, but it is a very rich voting block. And it is rich because these people sit in, in the middle of the medical profession, the engineering profession, the tech profession, the banking profession, uh, and a number of others where, you know, there are a lot of Indians and particularly in the tech world, Indians hire Indians. 
it's a well-known and notorious aspect of the H-1B visa lottery system, whereby Indian managers will hire other Indians and then will require Indians that they hire to give them kickbacks from their own salaries uh, as incentives. It's a very much perverse system of incentives. I never faced it. And that, that didn't happen to me, thank God. Uh, but it, it is common enough in India, in, in, among Indians in American companies, uh, that it is, that alone is a compelling reason to scrap the entire H1B system and start all over again. In fact, I'd say it's a compelling enough reason to just shut off immigration to America altogether. And that's exactly what, uh, his most illustrious, noble, august, benevolent, and legendary celestial majesty, the God Emperor of Mankind, Donaldus Triumphus Magnus Astra, the first of his name, may the Lord bless him and preserve him, the Lion of Midnight, should do. He should just shut all the borders. Like, you know, basically say, F off, we're full. Um, America should do that. And it is well past time that they do that. And I'm not saying that without skin in the game, by the way. I have relatives in the U.S. Uh, who are not American citizens, who, are, who don't have green cards, who would be expelled under those rules. So don't think that I'm saying this because it benefits me. It really doesn't. It hurts me tremendously uh, if that rule were implemented. It would mean that I would never be able to go back, for instance, uh, which would be uh, a huge blow to me personally. And uh, yet, I think it's the right thing to do because... You know, I actually care about America as a nation, not just as a concept. So, anyway, um, to answer the other parts of Johnny's question, uh, why are they left-wing as a high-income group? Well, I kind of answered that already. As I said, high-income cor correlates pretty well with leftist impulses. Uh, stupidity, leftist stupidity appears to increase with income. And again, it comes out of this misguided sense of noblesse oblige. Are they just resentful about being weak and ugly so they hate white people? Well, okay, I mean, look, I've, I've castigated Johnny before about his obsession with uh, Indian race behavior, and I find it distasteful. Uh, I'm going to say it again, dude, you know, find a new hobby horse. Uh, that being said, I will point out that yes, there is some sort of undercurrent of resentment towards whites, which pervades India. Um, I think, and this is just, you know, this is just me talking. I, I don't, I don't have much to back this up. So don't take my word for this, but from what I have seen, and it's just, again, this is just my experience. It may not be worth anything. Indians do have a certain resentment towards whites. Um, I think it's best summed up in Rudyard Kipling's poem, The White Man's Burden. Uh, Take up the white man's burden and reap his old reward, the scorn of those ye better, the hate of those ye guard, the cry of hosts ye humour, ah, slowly towards the light, why brought ye us from bondage, our loved Egyptian knight? Um, and there's another, there's another one, uh, I think it's the next stanza, in fact. Take up the white man's burden, ye dare not stoop to less, nor call too loud on fleet nor call too loud on fortune to cloak your weariness. Uh, by all ye will or whisper, by all ye leave or do, your silent, sullen peoples shall judge your gods and you. Um, those two stanzas, I think, perfectly sum up the attitude of 
Indians towards whites. Indians understand that whites gave them their country without, and I've gotten into many arguments with Indians over this, vicious arguments, without Britain as an imperial power ruling over India, the modern nation of India would not exist. Not a chance, okay? The entire reason India exists as a country is because of white people. Before Britain came along and used its very successful divide-and-conquer strategy to uh, pit different classes and castes and religions and so on against each other, that was happening anyway. The Brits just made it more obvious and more apparent. The idea of an Indian nation did not exist. There were multiple Indian empires made up of fractious Indian nations which existed, but there was no unified nation in the subcontinent. The time of the British Raj actually unified a huge number of people. I mean, we're talking the territory reaching into Afghanistan, through Pakistan, into Kashmir, Nepal, uh, all of the Indian subcontinent, uh, not Sri Lanka, but eastwards into sort of Bhutan, and east even of that into Cambodia. I mean, that is a gigantic territory. That is an enormous empire unto itself within the larger British Empire. Uh, what the British did with, you know, a territory encompassing all of those people with basically 100, 150,000 civil servants and administrators is astonishing. I mean, I am just in awe of what the British achieved. And I have great respect for the Brits as a result. But most Indians don't see it that way. They see it as, you know, the British, you know, the Britishers, they came in, they took our, they, they took our wealth, they took our land, they abused our people, they raped our country. Well, yeah, they did, that's all true. But look at everything they gave you back as a result. The entirety of the Indian judicial system, uh, education system, system of government, administrative system, transport system, healthcare system, uh, moral and legal system, uh, like, I mean, I went over legal, but moral code, even the Indian constitution, as messed up, as backward, as self-contradictory, as ridiculous as it is, is based on English common law. That is the great gift of the British. That is the civilizing force that they had upon a nation of, at the time, you know, when they, when they arrived, 300 million-odd pagans. And when they left, they had done so much to reduce poverty, to get rid of the, the, the more unsavory aspects of the pagan faith. Um, you know, the, the, the most important or the most visible of, of these was the, the banning of sati, widow burning. Uh, but also the improvement of the lives of the untouchables, uh, which was critical, which was incredibly important. Um, all of this was due to the British. So there is this kind of weird psycholo psychological, you know, Freudian, if you will, I, and I hate the term, but almost Freudian love-hate relationship with whites. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to use the, the, the sweeping judgment that Johnny uses, which are, are they just resentful about being weak and ugly? Well, no, I don't go that far. Or do they just hate white people? I don't go that far either. But I do think there is something there, psychologically speaking, about Indians hating white people. Um, some Indians get over it. Some Indians never have it in the first place. In my case, you know, I've never hated white people. I grew up around white people. Um, 
I admire white people. I like white people. I think whites are great. Uh, I've lived among white people for years. Um, I really have nothing against them, and I, 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 I think that the the current race baiting rhetoric uh, about and against white people is absolutely ridiculous and unconscionable. And I wish that white people would stand up for themselves and, and push back. Um, the next question is: Are Jews encouraging them so as to set Indians up to take heat once the collapse happens, so Jews avoid trouble? Well, again, I mean, this gets into the JQ. Uh, not terribly interested in that. All I will say is that the population of of Indians is way too small. There are only four million Indians uh, with American citizenship in America. Okay, um, that's according to 2018 data. Uh, the, the numbers expanded a bit, but it's not. It's it's still about one tenth the the number of um, blacks and a less than one tenth the number of Hispanics. When America breaks apart, not if, but when due to its nature as a multiracial, multi-ethnic empire inhabiting the footprint of a nation, of, of actually multiple nations, it will be because of these push-pull forces between Hispanics, blacks, uh, and others. The Jews already have an escape hatch. Jews can already go to Israel en masse, and they will go to Israel um, eventually. The... the, the idea that the the Jews I mean, there's a there's a, a Y River meeting you know years ago and uh, both the Supreme our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord Vox Day peace be unto him and I have uh, addressed this uh, I got the idea from him but or I got the 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 impetus from him but he mentioned you know the the learned elders of Y and he's mentioned this in a number of blog posts basically a group of Jews gathered at the y, at y River and had a conference, and you know this was referenced in the Jerusalem Post and a couple of other places, where they mapped out a future for the Jewish people, and they said, we can always go to China, because the Chinese have a natural affinity for Jews. And David P. Goldman wrote about this in a book uh, called Why How Civilizations Die. Um, is that what it's called? Yeah, I think so, or Why Civilizations Die. Uh, towards the end of the book, he actually wrote, as laughable as it sounds today, about how the Chinese and the Jews are natural partners. <laughs> it's a ridiculous theory. Uh, at the time, it might have seemed tenable, but it's absolute nonsense. Uh, this was back in 2013. Since then, I think uh, he and other Jews have changed their tunes, and they understand that uh, Jews will not be able to flee to China because the Chinese don't like them. Uh, what else? Uh, so, just do, will Jews avoid trouble once the collapse happens? No, they won't. They're going to get uh, absolutely uh, destroyed in the process. Okay, um, the rest of the question is, uh, uh, the rest of the answer to his question is, uh, relates to the caste system. So in my textual answers, I said, uh, a significant additional factor to the reason why Indians in America vote significantly Democrat, I mean like 80% plus Democrat, is because of Hinduism. Now, this is going to be contentious, um, but it's necessary. Um, Hinduism, as I said before, has a caste system. What, what does this caste system mean in practical terms? It means that uh, you are born into a particular caste and you are rewarded in your life for good things that you do 
and you are punished in your life for bad things that you do. You have your karma, uh, which is a kind of a hard concept to explain, but it's like kind of what you you what you give is what you get in return, sort of. Um, and you have your dharma, or your duty, your destiny, almost. And it's karma and dharma which conflict and interact with each other and, and weave together and form the pattern of your life. Now, if you have good karma, you are reborn, reincarnated in the next life as someone better, in a better position, a better caste. If you have bad karma, you are reborn as someone lower. Um, now, Hinduism is a very highly self-contradictory faith because on the one hand it says that you are rewarded for good things that you do and punished for bad things that you do. On the other hand, it's a very fatalistic religion in that if you if you do something bad, then it was foreordained, you know, and if you die at this particular point, that's your fate. Okay? You can't have both. You can't have free will and determinism at the same time. It doesn't work that way. The Christian doctrine is completely different. Uh, a lot of people say that Christianity has never resolved the contradiction between we're all part of God's plan and human beings have free will. No, no, no. There's a very clear resolution to that. God has a plan for us. God is using every single human being on this earth, is capable of foreseeing every single thing that they do. If he wants to know about it, he is capable of understanding every single thing that we will do. He is capable of foreseeing every single thing that we want to do, if he chooses to. This is where the concept of um, omnidirigence comes from, which, again, Vox Day explicated. God sees what we want to do, but he leaves it up to us to choose what we want to do. And he will then modify his plans accordingly, based on our actions and our outcomes. That is the exact opposite of determinism. We have free will. Our free will, ideally, should be turned to doing what God wants us to do, to listening to God, to understanding God's will for us. If we fail to do that, we are punished. But not by God, or not necessarily by God, but by the consequences of our own actions. God will punish us for disobeying Him, but He's not going to enjoy doing it. He doesn't enjoy doing it. He, 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 he is wrathful and vengeful, but he is, he is also sorrowful in the process. This concept of a personal God does not exist within Hinduism. Hindus keep saying, oh no, we're all about one, one God, big G, you know, O-G-M-G, one God, big G, any gods, small g. No, no. God in Hindu culture is a, not a personal force. It is an abstract force. It is basically the universe. Um, as a result, there is no personal relationship between a worshipper and a deity, uh, or between the deity. There, is, there are relationships between worshippers and deities, but they're not of the kind of personal nature that we as Christians have. That's a very different philosophy. Now, what does that uh, insistence on a caste system resemble? It resembles the Democrat leftist view that you are uh, a cog in a machine, that you are part of a structure that you have no control over. What do, furthermore, what does the Hindu belief in fate 
predeterminism resemble? It resembles the democrat belief that you are not a master of your own destiny, but you are a fact. You are a uh, an outcome of privilege, In, and depending on your various levels of privilege, you have certain predetermined outcomes in your life. The Hindu philosophy of reincarnation basically says that if you are reborn as an untouchable, then you must have done something terrible in a previous life to deserve being in the shit now. Literally in the shit, because untouchables are the people who clean toilets and sweep the streets. Okay, Which means that if someone else mistreats you and beats you up and shuns you and you know treats you like human garbage, you deserve it because of what you did in your previous life. And he has every right to treat you like that. He has every right to treat you as filth because of what you did. Okay, what does that resemble? That resembles the entire leftist ideology of white privilege and uh, the original sin of whiteness. Hmm, interesting. So what you're seeing is Hinduism and leftism converging almost perfectly on seemingly parallel trains of thought that eventually actually converge into one in the distance, in the horizon. Well, that's a big part of the explanation. Now, Johnny refuted this by uh, responding to my comment and saying, it is not logical that Hinduism makes people leftist since the Indians who vote Democrat in the US still love the right-wing leader of India. Hence, it does not seem they innately believe in leftism, um, aside from the appeal that leftism generally has for people who are physically weak and unattractive, but rather that they realize that voting Democrat pays off in terms of what Democrats can do for Indians. Uh, no, that's wrong. And I will point you to an article in the actual write-up for this, uh, which will tell you why that's wrong. It is entirely logical for Indians in the U.S. to vote to, to like Modi, the uh, current Narendra Modi, uh, the current Prime Minister of India. He is a right-wing nationalist. I mean, okay, right-wing in an Indian sense, which means he's basically, by American standards, a socialist. It's just that he is, he is a religious and ethnic nationalist, not a, not a sort of. Um, civic nationalist. Okay, He does not believe that just because you were born in India that makes you Indian, like American nationalists or American civic nationalists tend to be. He is not right-wing in the sense that he believes in lower taxes um, and, you know, uh, pulling back to into the, the sphere of influence of India. He believes in Indian greatness as a Hindu nation which deserves to be the ruler of the world, um, and he believes in Hinduism as the number one religion in the world. Uh, he believes that uh, uh, Islam is a deadly threat. In, in this, I actually agree with him. I mean, it's one of the only areas where I agree with him, but I agree with him. Um, and he believes that Christians are wicked and dangerous. And, uh, I mean, he doesn't go outright to say this, obviously, but um, he believes that Christianity is a big problem in India. Now, Narendra Modi made his name as the chief minister of Gujarat, uh, Indian state, uh, in which saw tremendous violence um, back in the early 2000s, I think, uh, tremendous sectarian violence. Uh, 
and he is now the Prime Minister of India, and that horrifies a lot of Indian left-wing intellectuals. By the way, left the left in India is very much in charge of, firmly in charge, of the universities, the media, and uh, the intelligentsia, just like in the U.S. And there's another link which I'll post in um, in the in the uh, description box, which you can read, and it will explain exactly why. The Indians in the U.S. love Modi because he gives them a lot of goodies. He has made his government has made it much easier for Indians overseas to come back to India and invest in India, get homes in India, open up bank accounts in India, without giving up their U.S. citizenship. The Indian Constitution expressly forbids dual citizenship. So, if you're an Indian and you give up or you, you acquire non-shitty citizenship, like you get a Canadian passport or you get a U.S. passport or a British passport or whatever, you must, by law, surrender your Indian passport. And that used to mean that you would be exposed to the idiocies of Indian immigration law where you would have to get an Indian visa, which was a huge pain in the ass. Then they streamlined that and turned it into an e-visa system, which is still a huge pain in the ass, uh, just less of one. And it's expensive because it's $100 for a single-entry visa, or a double-entry visa, basically, uh, which is only valid for three months. And on top of that, they, they got, well, they, they streamlined away from that system, too, to where they have the, uh, the two new categories, the uh, three, actually several new categories, the overseas citizen of India, the person of Indian origin, and the non-resident Indian. The NRI uh, is basically not in India for tax purposes. He spends less than 180 days a year in the country, um, so he can't be taxed, you know, he cannot be taxed by Indian levels, which are insanely high. Uh, he is able to come and go. I mean, he can open up a bank account. He can open up an NRI bank account in India. He has limited rights to purchase property. And while he uh, cannot, I don't think, get a job uh, in India, he doesn't have the right to work in India, he could still invest and buy property and live in India tax-free for a certain amount of time. A uh, person of Indian origin is someone who has non-Indian citizenship, uh, but has like blood relations to India and can come back and, again, has uh, a number of useful incentives, can open up a bank account, can, uh, I think, uh, can buy property, but uh, I don't think uh, is eligible for any government jobs. I think he can, I think he can get private sector jobs, but not government jobs. An OCI has a special card. Overseas Citizen of India is a special card that you get. Uh, it is not dual citizenship, but most countries treat it as dual citizenship. You can come back to India. You can open up a bank account. You can buy property. You can get a job in India, no problems, uh, except for government jobs. All three of these categories you cannot vote. But this is tremendous for Indians who left India, want to keep their connections to their homeland, because obviously Indians are very family-oriented people. So they inevitably have large families left in India, which they want to come back and visit as frequently as possible. And they now have much more freedom to travel back and forth between the motherland or the fatherland and their you know, actual country of citizenship. This alone illustrates exactly why paper citizenship is such a terrible idea, by the way. Uh, but that's the reality. People have embraced it. You know, do what you will with it. Um, so... That is why they love Modi, because he has given them a number of goodies, a number of incentives 
which they really love and they're very happy about and they want to keep them. So that explains in large part the love affair between the two. Uh, and it also, uh, if you also look at uh, Modi's deep dislike and distrust of Muslims and his, uh, his uh, while Modi himself has not really ginned up any of the rhetoric, he's been very effective at getting other people within his government to kind of be the strident voices arguing against Muslims. And he's, his government has instituted a number of laws, uh, most notably the, uh, the, what's it called? The NRC, the, the, the National, the National Registry of Citizens and the National Citizenship Act or whatever it's called. Uh, it was a huge controversy in India last year. I mean, huge. Uh, and, you know, thousands and millions of people were out there protesting. But, you know, Modi looked at it, the other, the, the, the sort of the great silent majority and said, yeah, uh, national, uh, national NAB, National Amendment Board or something like that. Um, where basically there's going to be a census taken to see who is Indian and who isn't. And those people who aren't Indian um, will, you know, their, their, their status in the country is going to be subject to some serious questioning. And it was interpreted widely as a move to ostracize and ban Muslims within India. Indians in America will never say this, at least not out loud, but they don't like Islam. They don't like Muslims at all. Um, they don't say it because it's impolitic to say it, but it's the truth. They really don't like Islam. And if you were to get uh, an Indian, like a, for instance, a Sikh and an Afghani together, on the outside they would look well, largely the same, except that the Sikh's turban would look way cooler than the Afghani's turban. Okay. The Sikh and the Afghani are only stopped from beating the shit out of each other by, so far, the imposition of American law over them. That's it. The Sikh religion exists entirely as, you know, today, as a defensive reaction, or originated, I should say, as a defensive reaction against Islamic invasion of India. Sikhs can't stand Muslims. Hindus in general don't like Muslims. And these are broad generalizations, but they are, like I said, like most generalizations, broadly true. So when you have a politician in India basically saying, or giving anti-Muslim fervor, an outlet, and a voice, Indians in America respond favorably to that. So, um, I've gone on at quite some length, and uh, I hope this has been useful to people. Um, those are my thoughts, and I will do a more uh, concise write-up uh, as well with this article uh, on this post, to, because that's what Johnny requested. Uh, and you can make of it what you will, really. Uh, but those are my thoughts on uh, why Indians tend to vote in, in the U.S. tend to vote left. Uh, in overwhelming numbers. And if you want a great example of that leftist thought and, you know, result in, in an Indian, in a, in a person of Indian origin, go check out um, a guy named Anand Girdhardas. Uh, I won't go into the details, but um, let's just say that I know more about him than I let on.
um, through various reasons. Uh, I won't go into details to protect both his family uh, and him, and myself, of course. So uh, let's just say that if you go look him up, you'll realize what this, where the convergence is between left-wing politics and Hinduism, and you'll see it very clearly. This is Didact, and this has been Domain Query, The Jackass and the Cow. <laughs>